So our goal with this session is to get you out there to report these stories, to talk to people, because you can do this. So hopefully you'll feel that after we finish up here. We're gonna give you a bunch of like practical tips and tenets from some of the work that we've done. I just wanna say that this is something that you can do if you're independent, it might be kinda of hard, but also if you are a station reporter, if you're a podcast producer, right? It's really for everyone. And also, this is something you can do. It doesn't have to be like a year-long project. It's something that you can do over a week, over a couple months, or maybe even for a day of reporting. I'm Adiza Egan. I'm a producer at Snap Judgment, and I hosted the documentary Counted, an Oakland story. And this is a story that a handful of Snap producers worked on. It was about eight to 10 of us. And we told the story of homicide in Oakland over the year 2017. So um, it's kind of like these mini stories about people's lives, and then there's like an event tied to each story. And um, I'm Linda Lutton. I am an education reporter for WBEZ, so I cover local schools here, Chicago Public Schools. I've been a reporter at BEZ covering CPS for like 10 years. I just made 10 years. Um, Woo! Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Hanging on. Uh, um, I worked on a project where I was um, reporting for, for months. It wasn't exactly a year, but it was, you know, almost a year. Uh, reporting from a fourth grade classroom in North Lawndale, which is on the west side of Chicago. And um, I created a documentary out of that, also a one-hour documentary. It's called The View from Room 205. So you're going to hear some clips um, from that. I also worked on the two hours of Harper High School that This American Life produced in 20, 2013, I think it came out. And um, I just want to say, too, that, like, honestly, in absentia, uh, just like Adiza said, you know, they created their documentary with a group of people. I had a lot of people involved in, in my documentary as well, and one I really want to shout out because I would probably not even have a documentary if it wasn't for her. Marianne McCune edited um, The View from Room 205. She is awesome. And if you don't know this, uh, something about Third Coast Conference that I love is that they post all the sessions. So I highly recommend Marianne McCune's session. It's called Making News Stories Good Stories. And it's, it's a beautiful session. So uh, go back, go back and listen to that. Okay, so very quickly, what do we mean by immersion reporting? So this is being in a place uh, with people who will become your characters for an intense period of time. Um, it's also taping thing taping things as they play out in real time. I like to think of it as like stories unfolding in front of the microphone. Um, and then it's also observing. You're kind of like a fly on the wall. Granted, the minute that you enter into a situation, it changes. But that's kind of the idea, right? You're observing, um, you're capturing people talking about things and just like living their lives with a microphone. Um, and we wanted to address sort of what does immersion reporting get you? And we thought we'd play a little tape to demonstrate the payoff. This is from a This American Life episode by Nancy Updike. The episode is about private contractors doing sort of military, U.S. military functions in Iraq. And Nancy's like riding along in a pickup truck with one of these private contractors. They don't always get along well with the U.S. military. Um, and Nancy and this contractor are on the grounds of uh, Baghdad International Airport, which apparently is extremely vast, it's like 11 square miles or something. And they run into two guys from the army who are out jogging. Hey guys. Got a minute? 
I'm supposed to be running back here, fellas. <laughs> well, number one says me. Okay. Hey, my boss. Well, uh, my boss is Major General Dempsey, okay, who's well, in charge of the five million people that are in the city of Baghdad. Well, Major Dem Major Dempsey then has Major also. Major General Dempsey. Well, Major General Dempsey then is the one who informed us. As a matter of fact, MOTC, Ministry oh, of Transportation. Ministry of Transportation. Okay. So these guys go along uh, and they're talking, and you can sort of imagine Nancy Updike there, like with her mic, fly on the wall to <laughs> to Adiza's point. Um, and meanwhile, like the two guys apparently are getting so close that their chests are almost touching. She picks up here. Number one, I ain't in your army, okay? Now, I came up here and said, hey, how about you doing me a favor? Now, you want to make it an issue, we can make it an okay, issue. make it an issue. Now, First of all, let me tell you something, Major. No, you let me tell you. Go ahead, tell me. But I'm let me you, tell you, those I pulled up to you, I asked you politely. Yeah. You, you got an attitude. You did. All right? I got an attitude. I've got civilians that have been here a couple months. We've I've been, been here since freaking July, pal. Oh, whoop-dee-doo. How been long you been March. here? Good for March. you. You're doing your job. But let me tell you yeah, something. Well, I, I, was... I ask you politely. Now, if you got to make an issue out of it, why don't we take it on up the mayor's cellar? But right now, I'm, right now, I'm telling you, you okay. are unauthorized to be okay. here. You got that? I got that. Then you're move really out. me. F*** you. Gold tape. <laughs> <laughs> so that is what immersion reporting will get you. Um, no, like you can totally imagine that Nancy Updike could have, you know, narrated that there's, you know, sometimes conflicts between these two sides. Um, but I think, you know, what this verite tape gets you is just so much of a, a sort of a deeper, visceral understanding of tensions and um, you just feel things at a deeper emotional level and sort of understand dilemmas that, that folks are in. Um, by the way, another plug for another uh, Third Coast session. I'm going to do these plugs because I really love Third Coast. And I think, like, me as a station reporter, like, I consider Third Coast, like, one of my trainers or mentors because I think the knowledge that they bring together at these conferences is so critical. But um, so on Verite Tape, on creating scenes just like that, uh, Claire Schoen in 2007 did a, a, a whole session just about getting that kind of tape, being a fly on the wall, and it's called Making a Scene. Um, so I really recommend that. But I think it's, this is, these are like beautiful examples of sort of the principle of show, don't tell. You can feel the impact of that and feel how you react to to sort of having that play out before your ears instead of just having someone say, and there are sometimes conflicts between the two sides. I think the end goal, honestly, is to get to a deeper level of truth. Um, you know, something happens when you're in a place for a long time. Subjects are not, they sort of stop performing for you. Once you're there long enough, there just becomes a point where people cannot stay on all the time. And I think a lot of times when we go out and interview people, they're on and they know what they have, their talking points, they know what they want to say. Once you're there, past a few hours usually, um, things get a lot more real. And I think you get to a place of truth. Gay Talese said he just hangs around until he becomes part of the atmosphere, which I like a lot. Um, and I think something else immersion reporting brings us Ted Conover, he worked as a guard at Sing Sing Prison and wrote the book New Jack, which is all about that. It really talks about how, he, he has talked about how immersion reporting leads to empathy, that you can't help but understand things better from, from all sides, really, from every side that you're watching. I think that's a real value in our work, too. 
Um, I just want to say I have a theory that immersion reporting works best with really big picture topics. So poverty, dropouts, gun violence. And I think it's because there's so much opportunity for surprise within those really big topics. Um, but you need a small story to get at those big topics. Um, so I think that's an important sort of distinction to keep in mind. Um, Alex Kotlowitz, another plug. This may be my last commercial, but Alex Kotlowitz, <laughs> um, he talks about the bigness of the small story. That's another Third Coast. Uh, All right. So how do you start? Well, I think when you start an immersion reporting project, like the most important thing is to have a curiosity about something. It could be a place, it could be an idea, it could be a concept. Um, the idea for Counted came from Jonathan Jones, and he was like, there's this, ch there's this church, right? And it's on this big street, and it has these crosses, and, um, and there's these names of these people who are on the crosses. And we're like, let's tell the stories of these people. Um, so we had the setting, and that was the church. And I'm gonna play you the beginning of the story, or Linda's gonna play it for you, so you can get a feel for it. It's New Year's Eve 2016. I'm at St. Columba Church in Oakland. Outside, a group of people circle around the lawn. In the garden, there's over 80 slim white wooden crosses. And on each cross, written in marker, is a name, an age, and a date of death. They stand for Oakland's homicide victims this year. Today, each name will be read and each cross pulled up from the ground. First is Carlos. His date of death, January 9th. Every year, there are mothers, fathers, children walking around Oakland with no idea that they'll be a statistic by the end of the year. We want to know who these people were and who they left behind. So beginning January 1st, 2017, we decided to reach out to the families and friends of each homicide victim. So that's the gist of it. It's pretty much everything I just said. Um, but so we knew that we had this church and we knew they had this ceremony every New Year's Eve. So in a way, we had the beginning and the end of the story. But like the middle, we didn't know what we were doing. Right. It was like eight to ten people. Everybody had an idea about what kind of story they wanted to tell about murder and violence and about the city of Oakland, which we live in and we love, right? And so, you know, you had people who wanted to do something about where the guns came from. You had people who wanted to do something about the ripple effect of homicide, right? So we were trying to like unite all of these things. And so for me, what I started to do immediately was just get out there and start reporting. And so um, I wanted to figure out what we could add to the narrative because like, we weren't reinventing the wheel. So many people have done homicide stories before. So I kind of came up with, with this little pitch and these questions that I could ask people on background. And I want to say to like, a lot of the producers in the room, a lot of new reporters in the room, it can be really intimidating to go out there and start asking people about a story that you're working on or ask questions, especially when you don't know the story. It's fucking terrifying. And so one thing I like to do is I have an elevator pitch. And it's just like three lines, like three pat lines that I have. And it gives me the courage to 
write that email, to do that cold call, or like I deliver like maybe like my third line when someone's kind of hedging and they aren't really interested in talking to me. And in addition to that pitch, I usually have like an open question. And so what I was doing is I was talking to people on background and what they were telling me was informing my reporting and it informed the way that I approached the story for the rest of the year. So I thought I would tell you a little bit about the um, beginning of the View from Room 205. I knew that I was writing about a topic, poverty and education. Um, I knew that because I'd won a fellowship to look at that, <laughs> and I'd proposed doing a one-hour documentary. But I didn't know the story. I didn't know the school I would be reporting from. Um, you know, over the summer before the school year, I started requesting access to schools I wanted to be in from the school district. I had nothing by the first day of school. Um, so I just decided that I would go wherever the mayor was going to go. Every year, the mayor goes and, like, rings the bell for the first day of school. And all press is allowed in for that, of course, because it's a big happy day. Um, and, and that's where I went. And um, luckily, it, and this was pure luck, it, was, uh, it happened to be one of the schools. I had given them like 20 or 30 schools that I was like, I'd like to go to any of these schools. And uh, it happened to be one of those on my list. So I was like, ooh, good, good lucky moment. And then I went, and there was another really big lucky moment when the superintendent of schools basically lays out my whole thesis right there on the first day talking to all the kids in this auditorium. Here she is. No matter where you're from, what neighborhood you call home, and no matter what your dreams are in life, it is right here at Penn that our children are going to get their start so that they can have that dream, chase that dream, capture that dream, and live it. There is nothing that they cannot do. There's no subject too hard for you to learn. There's no dream you can't achieve if you stay focused and persistent. Yeah, basically like this piece, you know, I had always intended to sort of look at the American dream and Americans' reliance on schools to move kids and families out of poverty. Like that's essentially what I'm looking at. That's what I'd proposed in my fellowship. And here the uh, superintendent just lays it out in front of a bunch of little kids. And uh, so that was lucky. But I have to say like even then, even given that luck, I wasn't 100% sure that I would report from Penn. Um, uh, I finally decided that like some months later, I continued to sort of speed date schools. So I was doing like exactly what Adiza's team was doing, which is just going out and talking to a lot of people, sort of like pursuing all these leads, but not knowing what direction ultimately you're gonna be running, what path you're gonna be running down. Um, I finally decided on Penn, it was December when I decided that, um, and I decided that after finding out more about the micro history of Dr. Martin Luther King, he had lived right across the street from Penn and had looked at the very same issues, really, in many ways that I was looking at, poverty, 50 years prior. It was a weird and very underplayed part of Chicago's local history that he had lived there. And it was, I would say, all but forgotten that, like, no one had ever made a connection between this school and where Dr. King lived across the street. So that was like... I was like, oh, that's too many strokes of good luck. Like, here's my school. So the point from this is it really doesn't matter too much what you start with. Just start, pursue leads, continue to talk to people, and trust that through the reporting, you're going to find your, your, a story that makes sense. 
And as you're reporting, one of your like, most important jobs is to get and keep good access. You know, I like to think like when you're reporting stories, there are people who are more accessible and then there are the harder to reach folks. And what immersion reporting allows you to do is to get to the harder to reach folks, to tell like the more nuanced, deeper stories. And so in reporting Counted, I found that the harder to reach folks were um, younger people, people whose siblings were dying, people whose friends were dying. And I also felt like these are the people who like, create culture for us, right? They're the, they're the young black and brown people who like photographers will like go and take pictures of and then create their whole like spring campaign, right? And so, um, so I felt like this was a really critical piece that I wanted to have in the story. And um, you know, we didn't have it for a long time. And I'm gonna play some tape for you. <clears throat> it's critical tape that I got like 11 months in when I was almost done with the project. And it's from a young woman named Amani. I don't have her picture. Um, but she was one of those harder to reach folks. Um, so and just yeah, just to throw in like she becomes like a linchpin of your. Piece. Mm -hmm. She's like one of the first people that you hear from, and she didn't get that interview until she was almost done with the reporting eleven months in. My name is Amani Foster, and um, I'm from East Oakland, California. I'm 21 years old. But I never had to describe myself before. This is weird. Um, I'm black. <laughs> unapologetically black. Um, I'm goofy, obviously. Four days into the new year, we lost our first child, a young man named Devante Thomas. Devante was killed just nine blocks from where we're sitting now. He was about the same age as Amani and her brother. They were all close. Amani says he was always looking out for her. And she had just seen Devante at a party. It was like a, um, like a little block party. And he had gave me some money. He had smoked with me and he told me like, you know, be careful, stay safe, you know. And he told me to go home too. He was like, you shouldn't even be out here. But I was grown, but he was still like, go home. You know, like, I don't want to see you out here. Like, go home. I left too, because I'm like, all right. You know, he wouldn't be telling me this if he didn't know what he was talking about, you know. Don't nobody talk about another murder in these streets. So we still don't know exactly what happened to Devante after he got killed. After Devante was killed, of course Amani was sad, but she was also on edge. She was worried for her brother, Darnell. And then, around midnight on February 11th, Amani got a phone call. And so um, she finds out that her brother was shot, and then she proceeds to tell the story of going down there to the site and seeing her brother laying on the ground. And um, you know, this tape for me just, it really was everything. And we even slipped in that beginning part, like at the very last moment. And um, I knew about Amani, but it took months to get that interview. And by that time, I had learned that she was connected to Devante Thomas, who was the first homicide of the year. And so, you know, I feel like that's some of the luck that you get when you're doing these projects like this. It's like, you know, you'll have these 
these people who you're trying to get and who you have like kind of access to, you're in their orbit. But then as you're reporting, as you're learning things, that what they can add to the interview becomes so much more like prominent as you go along the way. And so I think it really starts with the relationships that you build with the more accessible folks who, in this case, um, it was Amani's mother. It was with her mother and her grandmother who I was following, who I was going to court with. And I just feel like that's what set the stage for that deeper, uh, more intense interview. And to you eventually talking to her at all, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So in addition to building up these relationships, you know, what you're working towards is this point where everybody's just gotten completely used to you, where you're like the person with the headphones in the room all the time. Um, and um, again, to that sort of fly in the wall point and... I want to talk more about relationship building and and sort of fly in the wall and how those two can interact by playing this little piece of tape. This I got in the the reporting at Penn, and I'm in a uh, staff meeting. I've walked into a staff meeting, which would have been a common thing for me to walk into. The week before the big park test, I stopped at a staff meeting. It was in the principal's office. The third, fourth, and fifth grade teachers were gathered, including Ms. Hathorne. The topic was the upcoming park test. This is the first part. Is this the actual test? Yeah. Each teacher was looking at a test booklet or photocopied test booklet. The park tests arrive in the mail. School officials are told to keep the box under lock and key until they give the exam. That's how serious security is around these tests. But now, here I was looking at the actual test, and so were the teachers. They were poring over reading passages and questions. Okay, this is Gary talking. Oh, mm-hmm. We already read this. We, we read it. Yeah. Oh, good. Yep. It's like the practice. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right, let me see these questions. I already know the story. Yeah. I acted like this was the most normal thing in the world, to see teachers paging through the state standardized exam. But inside, all I could think of was why? Why are they doing this? I did not want to be seeing this. What, um, was that the real park test you guys were looking through? Uh, yeah, we have, we have a test. It's Principal Ali. You have the actual test, mm-hmm. huh? So can yeah. the teachers look through that like that? Uh, they, go, they can see the test. We can give them the test before the, the test happens. Um, I want to familiarize them with the format of the test, but it doesn't say that they can't have the test before the assessment. So hopefully they can. I should have said spoiler, right? <laughs> yeah, major spoiler alert. So that's kind of peak fly on the wall right there. Like, I am photographing and recording cheating on a state standardized exam like uh, that gives me chills like even to this day I've never heard or seen any other tape of anybody ever capturing that kind of moment Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about like what's going through my head as a reporter in that moment like first of all I'm totally aware that I'm watching cheating this is my beat I understand what the rules are around this and I know what I'm looking at I went immediately home. I had all these pictures, and I described the what I was seeing. Like I, I didn't send the pictures to the state, but I described the pictures and the passages and what I had seen to confirm that this was the actual test, and it, and it was. I am also completely aware that Dr. Ali is probably lying to me. 
Um, and this is something else that you get sort of in immersion reporting. Like, people are just not able to bullshit you the same way because you kind of know the, what's, what's up. Um, I'm also aware that it's, like, only March, and I'm kind of going, like, oh, shit. Like, I have so much left to report. What I say in the piece is genuine. Like, I did not want to be seeing something like that. I was not looking for something like that. And also, I was actually really looking forward to a year where I would not have to um, report on standardized testing. Because <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to do my big picture thing for once. And then I'm like, wow, really? I had not looked into cheating. Other people who had had my fellowship had like done whole studies on like test questions and test and testing. And I hadn't done that. That was not my research area. I wasn't looking at that at all. I was also like immediately aware of like ethical dilemmas. Like I had told the principal that I was there under certain auspices. Um, my project is about poverty and what school looks like in one of America's poorest neighborhoods and the pressure that schools are under. And that's how she understood what my project was about. And that was true. And then here I was confronted with something that honestly, ethically as a reporter, I feel an obligation also to, to report what I've seen. Um, and I hope I did that in a responsible way. And that's like another discussion. But so I wanted to say like you spend time, you know, building relationships, but during reporting, like real things can happen that can threaten those relationships. And, um, you know, sometimes people talk in, in immersion reporting about access, like gaining access as building trust. I have actually never talked about building trust at Penn. Like I definitely was working hard at building relationships with kids, with their parents, with the staff, with uh, community people, folks in Lawndale. Um, but I really don't and never did presume that people like trusted me. And I think there's a lot of, um, even people that I have good relationships with, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think high on the list is the role of race uh, in this, country and in my city. Uh, Chicago's an extremely segregated city, like right up to the end of months and months of reporting. I know there were people on the blocks where the fourth graders lived that were, you know, thought I was police. Uh, police or a child welfare worker, either one, and neither one is good, right? So um, I understand that. Also, you know, past experience with the white media has like not been good for Lawndale and Man, uh, there is a series the Tribune did from the 1980s, I think it was 1986. Almost every time I met with someone in Lawndale, they brought up that series. That's 1986. That is the history that's going before me. And I think that, you know, finding the cheating challenged the relationship and certainly challenges notions of trust. So we don't say this in the documentary, but I'll tell you, I, I was actually kicked out, I say, of Room 205. There were months and months where I couldn't report from Room 205 because Miss Hathorne, um, she just kind of got to the end of her rope. Um, this was before the, any kind of cheating. Uh, we didn't write it into the piece because when we did write it in, it felt like because this, this episode comes up later, you felt like, ooh, was she trying to you know, keep you out because she was trying to do nefarious things. And I don't think that is so. And so we, we didn't end up writing that in. But just to show, like, actually, in a number of immersion projects that I've been in, I have been kicked out of multiple schools or classrooms. And I, I almost feel like it's almost par for the course because things do happen. 
and every one of those projects, it's actually led to good reporting afterwards. So do not despair when you're kicked out. Just pivot. Think about what to do next. So another one of your jobs as you're reporting is to identify characters and storylines. This is like one of your fundamental jobs. I think as I was reporting, I knew from the beginning that I wasn't going to hang my story or didn't really want to hang my story on one particular kid. Um, but in a class of 30 kids, sort of like, who are you going to pick? Who's going to be your character? I think when you do a daily story, a lot of times all you need is like a good talker with like a decent story, and that's going to carry you. Um, for a bigger project that's looking at things also from like, the, remember I'm doing this research and I have like some educational points that I'm trying to make. I wanted characters that would show sort of distinct aspects of the phenomenon I was looking for. I ended up featuring four stories from four kids and there were at least two more kids that I had really developed like tons of tape, totally developed storylines that got cut from the piece. Um, and I'll just say maybe one last thing like, Sometimes you don't know uh, someone will become an important character until something happens. Um, there's a scene in the piece where one of the fourth graders, Chelsea, her cousin is killed. And when, when that scene happens, like when that happened, I, I knew I wanted that in the piece. But I, I had not focused on Chelsea. And that happened in August. Like I stopped re recording in August. And so this is August after like the fourth grade is, the school year is done. It's really the only part of the piece that's sort of completely out of chronological order. And I had to actually go back and reconstruct Chelsea as a character because I had not thought of her that way in class. She didn't come across that way. Um, so just sort of be prepared, be prepared to pivot all the time. For us, um, in terms of character and storyline, we started with this church and, you know, Pretty immediately, we realized that the story like had nothing to do with the church. Um, it was we had a lot of people who were dying in deep East Oakland, and the church was all the way across town, and there just really wasn't much happening in between aside from them like putting up these crosses. And so, you know, we started looking for other ways to move the story along. <clears throat> And it really did, it felt like chaos and it can feel like chaos when you're like looking for all these different characters and someone who will give you like that amazing story with that twist and everything. But um, there's a couple of like tips that you can use when you're looking for people and kind of like scouting um, characters, if you will. And they'll give you plot, and if you're lucky, you might get a plot twist. So, you know, one of the things that you want to look for is like a person who wants something um, and identify what they want or what they're looking forward to, uh, ideally for the duration of your reporting. And then also, like, think about important life events. So that's kind of like identifying what they're looking forward to, you know. Think about, like, potential climaxes. Figure out how to be there for those events or how to be there immediately after. Sometimes it just happens that you don't get to, like, be around for something groundbreaking, but if you can get them right after kind of reacting to that and describing it, I think it kind of serves a similar purpose. And then also look for crossover between characters and events. Um, so this way you're having people who you've been following who are at similar events, um, and then you can kind of get them in the same space, and that will help to move the story along. And so with Daryl, who eventually becomes the co-host of the documentary, he's like a really good example of this. He was an activist who we kept running into, and we would find him at vigils. Anna was working with him on his like story itself, on his like micro story, Anna Sussman, um, who's managing editor at Snap. 
Um, and then, you know, slowly over time, he emerged as this obvious character because he had, he, like, he was keeping tabs of the murders on his own. And then, you know, it was like we were doing this parallel work and the stakes felt really high for him. Like, he, you know, it was, there was his health, there were all these people that he knew. There were just so many things that he wanted. And I felt like, you know, that was like really important. And you can hear it with a lot of the characters who are in the beginning of the story as well, right? You have this mother who loses her son and she's thinking about moving. And it's like, she doesn't know where to move. She can't, she can't find housing in Oakland. One of the things that we didn't include in the story was that she was also dealing with a trial. And so she was gearing up to like, look at her son's killer in court. And he was friends with her son, you know? So there were like all of these moments that she was like preparing for. Um, that we had on tape. And I was, you know, I was just trying to like be there for each one. And I think ultimately with someone like Daryl, if you've heard the story, there were a lot of people who were doing very similar work for him. But when it came to the writing stage, we decided to pick him as the main character because he was in, you know, he was at a lot of these events. He, there was that crossover that we were um, kind of looking for in order to move the story along and not just have it be these like standalone micro stories. When you guys have those connections in your piece, I feel like it really, it's really like powerful. Even as a listener, when I was listening to Counted, which I love and everybody should listen to, I mean, it just felt really powerful. Like Imani, when you played her and you're like, oh man, sh this girl knows the first death of the year. And then you're like, oh my God, like her brother was killed and her, and her brother's killer is connected in another way. Mm -hmm. These connections, they become like, they, they feel really chilling. They feel really important <laughs> somehow when they're told in the, in the narrative. Okay, so we have some like really pragmatic, quick, basic reporting tips that we want to just like rattle off. So mine is um, number one: always walk into the school rolling or like wherever you are. Um, never turn the tape recorder off. The one time I did not go into pen with my tape recorder, I was up by the security guard's desk, and three little kids walked in. Really little kids walked in to enroll themselves. They were in a brand new neighborhood and their mom had a bad leg, and she had sent them to the school to enroll themselves, including a fourth grader. Oh, I missed it. And I tried to write it in as script, and I just, it doesn't work. Keep your tape recorder on all the time, even if you're just going to pick something up. Yeah. Make a plan for one or two things that you want to get out of your day or the next few hours of recording. I think sometimes it can be really overwhelming. I know I'll go into a situation, I'm like, I need to get this, 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 and I don't even know who I'm following. So like when I'm sitting in my car before, or like as soon as I like, like walk up to the scene, I'll just be like, okay, I want like that person. Okay, I'm going to a vigil. Okay, let me get like a prayer, like mic'd really close. Let me get like this. And then let me get one other person. If there's someone else who is a character who I'm following, who I didn't know was gonna be there, then I'll get them too. You know, so I just have like a strategy before I go into these situations that can be pretty chaotic. Um, next, don't worry that you're over-reporting. Um, some documentarians have said their ratio is 60 to one, like 60 hours of tape to one hour of on-air time or airtime, podcast time or whatever. My ratio is so much worse than that, <laughs> so much worse. Okay, uncalculably. <laughs> and then our last tip is to um, keep your tape organized in some way. Like it's the worst when you're like trying to find things and you just have no system. And um, so I had 
a log that I kept. So we were actually doing another reporting project at the same time as Counted. And the log that I started, this Excel spreadsheet, I adopted from that process. And in that process, I used the, like, my Excel log a lot more. But what I would do is like, as soon as I would get raw tape, I would put it in the spreadsheet, and then I would, um, if I gave it a new title, I would write the new title, and then I'd have the date, I'd have like what, what I got, like one of them it says like straight up interview. And then, um, and then just like the content, like really quickly if there was anything interesting. And then we actually switched to a Google form that Pat made for us. <laughs> and so we had like a really, really detailed version of like, okay, who was there? What happened? Like, what are the names of your clips? And, and then we had like a little PDF and it was all in a file so you could just find it and you could see like, all, you know, just like a lot of stuff about your tape. And it like, it sucks when you have your tape and you finish recording and you've just done like a whole day of reporting. You're like, the last thing I want to do is like sit on my computer and like do this, but it's really, really helpful in the long run. I also have kept logs very, really similar to this. And then in terms of, I took a picture of part of my files. This is, these are my tape files. And every day I would just dump my, my tape in there and it's just the date uh, in that chronological type format and then it's um I always write on the file like what big thing happened that day so I can remember back one other thing I want to say is like immersion reporting is not all tape like you are reporting at the same time just like you would for any other story so that means getting police reports it means you know if there's something related to police it means doing background interviews with all kinds of people in the place where you are and then connected, you know, sort of outside in the neighborhood, reading books and articles. I spent so much time in like the history museum and all of our libraries digging up like all this micro history from the Martin Luther King uh, period. So I could write in some cases, just like a sentence or be sure of what I was saying. So to wrap, you know, build your relationships, you know, follow your storylines, find your characters, never turn the recorder off. Be, uh, you're going to over-report, and that's okay, and then be organized in terms of the tape. So so now you have, like, hundreds of hours of tape. You know all the scenes that you want, but, like, you have to sit down, and you have to write this thing. <laughs> it can be very, very intimidating. So our tip, our first tip for this is, like, even if you don't have the whole narrative uh, mapped out, write in little chunks. Linda and I both uh, discovered that this is something that we did um, in addition to like not knowing what our story was for like many, many months. Once we like kind of figured it out, we were like writing in these little chunks. And at Snap, what we did is before we started writing, we would have these little meetings where we would discuss what everybody was doing, who they were following, and what was interesting. And so we kind of had that like in our head as we were sitting down to write. And then what we did is we wrote um, our stories as standalone stories. So I like sat down with tape. And I would get all my like moments together and I was just producing standalone stories. I wasn't worrying about how it was gonna fit into the timeline or anything or the bigger narrative. You know, we didn't really know what the bigger narrative was. We just wanted to see what we had and what was interesting about it. And so once we had those micro stories, first we actually listened to them offsite and then we got together and discussed what was interesting about each story. And then with some of the stories, we found a lot of similarities. And so we had to figure out, okay, are we gonna keep this story in? If so, like what is a different takeaway that we can have in it? And those are the takeaways if you listen to the story now that they've become like really clear and drawn out. Um, that started kind of like when we started focusing on them. And then from there, 
um, we, the producers went and worked on the stories again. And then at a certain point, Anna and I took all the tape and then we sat down together and we wrote the big uh, master script for the story. And so we just kind of like went, we knew what the micro stories were and we had them like laid out and we decided to go in chronological order. And then we filled in the story that we had in between. And what we did is we basically just kind of like whittled it down and whittled it down um, more and more. And so we just like go back, see if it worked, see if it made sense. And then we continue to like cut things out and cut people out. I think like the challenge of immersion reporting, you know, you sort of turn your tape recorder on and like six months later or whatever, you turn it off. And if someone did that on your life, like if you just think about it, you'd be like, well, what's the narrative arc there? Like, what are the storylines? What, 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 what even just happened over the last six months? So having some of these things, and I guess what I used as a gauge was like when I would be out reporting and something would happen or something in class would happen that just stuck with me. Um, like that's what I would use as a measure. And I knew, I didn't know anything else. I didn't know how the story would start. I didn't know how it would end, but I knew like that, that was gonna be in there. And so I'll, I'll play an example of that. And I think actually, like I really loved Adiza's piece, you know, it has these bookends of at the church. And then basically in the, you know, throughout the piece, you have like eight obits to people and you really hear those as, they're connected stories, but they're really, they could stand independently. So when I wrote these little chunks, like these are like how you write a, a feature in your shop. Like it's like a six minute, a 10 minute feature basically. So I'm gonna play you a one and a half minute thing that happened on the street that, uh, that I knew was gonna be in this piece. One day I ran into Kelsey outside right by Penn. He was with his brother and we were talking for a while before I realized the conversation kept coming back to the same place. You got candy? I'm sorry. I, I had a lot of chips gum. today. I don't want no more chips. I had hot chips. You full? No, you, no, I ain't full. Since there was no school to stay, there was also no school breakfast or lunch. A guy from a social service agency happened to pass by coming out of Penn. He tossed each of the boys a little bag of chips. Kelsey's brother finished his own, then started eyeing Kelsey's. I can get some. I just gave you some. I can get two. Thank you. Are you hungry, Colton? Yeah. You are? What did you eat we, today? We ate none. We ate chips, and that's all. Well, plus your breakfast, right? Yeah, breakfast. We didn't eat breakfast, because we went outside. It's almost 5 p.m. And we didn't ask for breakfast anyway. We got to ask before we get. Kelsey looks at me. Do your kids got to ask before they get? I'm hungry. My stomach growling. Let's hear it. Let's see if I can hear it with this. Yeah. Turn it way up. I put my microphone right up next to Kelton's tummy, and I give him my headphones so he can hear. And just as I do, a car drives by, which sounds like a big growl in the headphones. It is. Yeah, I definitely knew that I wanted that in the piece. So, the, the, like, you write these little chunks, and in my story, thanks to my genius editor, Marianne McCune, um, 
these little chunks actually became sort of chapters in my audio story. And because I was trying to do something complicated in radio, which is have a bunch of people, I actually wanted the classroom to be the character so that you hear me all the time saying the fourth graders, the fourth graders, the fourth graders, like that's my main character, but that's really tricky in radio. And what these chapters did for us is we kind of like introduced the kid in a way and have something happen to them and have the story resolved all within that self-contained chapter. Um, and that's how we resolved that, that problem. So that brings me to this next tip. Um, consider using one of your characters as the narrator. Okay, one of the things when I first heard Counted that I loved, loved was this guy named Daryl Allum, his role in the story, in Adiza's story. He's a character, so you hear him on the street. He's, you, you hear him being interviewed, and you also uh, hear him sort of reading, um, reading script. So we cut this piece of tape, and you can hear, like, listen for all three of those in this, in this cut. So when I first started doing this, man, my street family, my church family, man, I mean, my sandbox friends, even my damn pastor thought I was crazy. I did a video on 94th and Peach Street in less than 24 hours. It, it went viral. And a lot of people started following. So Daryl's that guy on the street corner. Some people honk their horns at him. Some people roll up their windows. I'm here. Today, tomorrow, Sunday, I'm here. So my plan for 2017, yeah, I'm trying to decrease the homicides. We got to go under 80, man. Got to. Compared to other cities, Oakland is small. It's like a fifth of the population of Chicago. You can, like, meet anybody in Oakland. You're like, what you gonna that was total luck. Um, I think having someone narrate your piece, it might work, but it might also not, and you just really don't know. It depends on the person. Um, but we, at, we knew we wanted to have a narrator for this story, and we wanted to kind of have someone who was like, a, like an unofficial mayor type um, to tell this story. So it was something that we were thinking about um, kind of as we got to like the writing process. And um, with Daryl, his name came up and he was like, he was authoritative, he can command a room, you know, he was like this really great talker and he's a performer. So we're like, okay, let's try it. And we wrote this like this rough script for him. And what we would do is we would go into the studio and we would deliver lines and it didn't always go that, that well. Um, and so instead, so then I'd just kind of be like, okay, let's talk like your person. And so you can kind of hear that. You can hear the lines, and then you can hear kind of like the two-way conversation, and then you can hear like Facebook live tape, and then you can hear like in-scene tape in there too. And so we kind of just like mixed it together because we had, we had thought of him like just as a character, and then by the time he became the narrator, we had all of this tape to kind of like support that role for him in the story. And then I just wanna make a really quick point about narrating a story. There's a ton of different ways to do it. One of the things we try to do at SNAP is like, have the producer get out of the way of the subject of 
a story. Um, if they feel a way about something, they can express it for themselves. And so I think this can be really tough when you're doing like an immersion reporting project with so much show and you might feel like you need to have context. And having a narrator who's like a person who's actually on the ground in this situation um, is a really great way to do that. When you guys listen back to Counted, like one thing I love about the narration in their piece is Adiza will will we'll come in with these super spare narrations, super spare comments. Like sometimes she'll be talking, it'll be like playing tape, playing tape, and then, then Adiza will go, why? And then it'll be like <laughs> 10 more minutes of just like letting everything fold out. And I love that so much about her style and like that, the style of that piece. I think it's like great. I actually aspired to do that with my own piece and I totally flunked that. So <laughs> that changed, uh, but I really love that. It depends um, on the person. Okay. <laughs> World building is very important. And one of the things I love from View from Room 205 is that I feel like I'm at ear level with the fourth graders. Like the tape, I'm about to play you, we're about to play you some tape. And like when I heard this tape, I was just, I was so excited because I was waiting to hear the fourth graders. And I felt like I was with them, like in the classroom, on the schoolyard, wherever they were at. And I just really liked like how. Linda has this really complex story and she's giving you the con like basically she sets it up she's giving you all this context for this cheating really um that's how I see it um but it's all told from like this fourth grade perspective so here's the tape <laughs> at recess I'd let the fourth graders play with my radio equipment hey y'all uh, They'd pretend to be reporters, celebrities, all live on air from room 205. Kelsey, what did you see about the hurricane last night? Um, I didn't see the hurricane, but shout out to my mama. I love you and I miss you and I hope you bring my big old remote control car. Kelsey's got an ear-to-ear -ear smile and a backpack bigger than he is. Just about every time Kelsey got near my tape recorder, he'd give a shout out to his mom. I thought his shout-outs were like any other kid's shout-outs, until I found out he only sees her on Fridays. He's a foster kid, and my microphone, Kelsey saw it as a way to connect with her. He found some way to work it in, no matter what the question was. Did you hear about the Michael Brown shooting? Yeah, I heard about the Michael Brown shooting. It was this white man, and this white man killed Michael Brown. So I want to know how you did this and what decisions you made to kind of like accomplish that feel. So I think like immersion reporting is like a real opportunity to see and depict people in like a fuller way, in a 360 degree sort of depiction way. So while I'm writing about really like heavy topics like hunger and eviction and, you know, like the kids themselves bringing up uh, white cops shooting black people, uh, you know, I'm also like there for moments of like humor and joy. And you see all those moments. You really like see the 360 degrees. So it becomes easier to, to depict that. Um, Another thing like that I want to say about world building like that that's what Adiza calls it. I always think of it like a circle. Like when I'm writing and this is like something I define in the writing phase, I think about like what is my circle. And like in this case, my circle is like this classroom room 205. I think that especially when you're writing about something really big and expansive and you have all this tape, like having some sort of circle 
is essential because it, it tells you like what's outside and what's inside. There's no place that the fourth graders didn't know or didn't go to or aren't familiar with. And the and everybody, even though I was interviewing lots and lots of experts, and I know you all were too, there's no experts in our piece. Um, one exception, Arnie Duncan, U.S. Secretary of Education at the time, he comments directly on these fourth graders. That's the only sort of outside person that they wouldn't have known. Mm -hmm. um, so that's it. Hey, so when you were talking about the elevator pitch, you said you give three lines or address three questions. What are those three? So, like the three lines are basically like about the story. So I would say, hi, you know, I'm Adiza Egan. I work at this show called Snap Judgment. It's a storytelling show, and we're doing this uh, this story about homicide, um, and we're following all the homicides this year. Because we're a storytelling show, we really want to take the opportunity to tell the story of these people who died and what they missed out on in life and who they were. You know, like I would like get like those were like my lines, and then um, and then I would you know I would ask them like, what do you think the media is missing about homicide? And these were like really like my background people. So it started with like people who worked at nonprofits, and it was you know like the local nonprofit that was um, hooking up mothers with like their whole plan for what to do like as soon as they get the news of the murder you know and then I would just hear from them and actually what people were telling me is they were talking about the ripple effect of homicide so then I would kind of be like you know I'm you know it's it might be a story about the ripple effect of homicide like what do you make of that and just continuing to like gather with what you know I was hearing from people who were like actually in the in the thick of it. You said your, your pitch would change over time, right? Yeah, it's kind of yeah. like how it was almost like almost like you're using other people's like reaction to what you say your story is about as like a gauge to figure out what your story should be about. When you don't know your story. Um, also, if you listen to Finding Cleo, she also Connie does this a lot when she's talking to people. You can hear it in the tape. Like she does, you can hear her kind of giving her pitch. And in that one too, like a lot of people will hedge and then she'll like continue with like her lines. It's just, I found it very effective. So uh, I was really interested in how you um, considered the character as a narrator, and I was wondering if you, one, if, do you ever like uh, sort of audition multiple people? Do you some, like multiple characters as n narrator and then maybe have like them not uh, tell the story? And also do you allow them to like write their own script beyond just like having a conversation in the studio? Like would you just be like, hey, like, walk me through this thing and then, or, or like, you know, write some script around this type of issue and then just sort of collect the tape later. Mm -hmm. Well, like this, first of all, this was all kind of like new territory, so, um, but we had a situation before um, when we were doing our story senior year mixtape. I mentioned that we were reporting another story alongside this. We were in a high school and we had the same idea. We were trying to use um, like the guidance counselor as the narrator. And it just didn't work. And he he wrote his own, he wrote some of his own lines and everything. And it just, you know, it just, it, it wasn't landing. Um, but, but yeah, so, you know, like sometimes like you have them write it. I think it's easier like to actually get in the studio with them and kind of like create this conversation around what is supposed to be the narrative and like what the narration is supposed to be. Um, I just like that style more with people. Um, and it just seemed to work with him too, but like, yeah. 
One place I feel like that does this really well is um, radio rookies with kids. Like you're basically hearing kids tell their own stories, but those stories are really highly produced. So you sort of see the the back end of producers, like the role of producers in, again, like Adiza saying, like bringing these people into the studio, talking through their stories. And there might be some people who are more able to read a script or do something riff off a script and then other people it's just going to be a conversation where you're trying to you're trying to get them to say certain words or express certain ideas that they have that they've already expressed to you you just need it in a form where you can stick it in your piece thank you both so much that was really great um i'm just wondering when you were talking about the cheating there's kind of two questions one is like were you also filing and so you needed to get a response straight away and also like from the state. And also once you then wrote to the state and described the tests and it became clear that they had been cheating, what impact did that have on the rest of your reporting? So that's a good question whenever you have an immersion reporting situation because I've done immersion reporting where we are coming out with stories. It's sort of like an ongoing series as the school year rolls out. As far as I can tell, you always get kicked out on those stories. And I have been kicked out on stories like that. Uh, but in this case, I was holding all the tape. And I was going to make a single documentary. And the state, uh, their one concern was, please do not publish that photograph. If you have photographs, do not publish it. Because that would constitute a violation of their contract with Pearson, the test company. Because it would expose the top secret test to the public. That was their main concern. The school wasn't, I mean, I, I feel like I fairly talked to Dr. Ali in the moment right away. And also before our piece came out, I went back and talked to Dr. Ali. And I said, you remember that time when I was in the staff meeting, you guys were reviewing the test. Um, I, you know, before our story aired, well before I went back and told her that was going to be part of this hour. And she, she knew about that. Um, but, you know, the reporting had been wrapped up by then. So... I didn't use the word cheating either in the piece or with Dr. Ali. I didn't say that word. I don't say the word in the documentary. And I say, I compare it to Atlanta, which was going on at the time, and I say why it wasn't Atlanta. And I try to put it in perspective and treat it fairly. I think it's like actually really, uh, there's like really interesting parallels between when you know people and you under, you're seeing sort of all the pressures. I think it's the complete value of immersion reporting right there is like to know all the actors, to understand the kids, to, to see the pressure on the school, to see the importance of the tests, to, to, and then to see what happens and to be able to understand Ms. Hathorne's perspective, Dr. Ali's perspective, the perspective of the uh, people above all of these folks. Um, and to understand f more fully the neighborhood and the situation uh, in, the, in the community that families are facing. I think that's the difference between the, maybe the reporting out of Atlanta and then something like this, which is much more isolated. I have a question about the uh, writing in little chunks that you guys mentioned. Um, when in the process are you doing that? Are you doing that as you come across the chunk? Like, Later that day after you met the kids who were talking about the food, did you go home and write that? Or was that like months later when you were trying to figure out what your grand narrative was? You're like, I know I want that, I want this. I could think it could work either way. Um, but for me, it was at the part where I was starting to write. But I was also making like an outline and I had those little chunks in my outline. And I, I kind of was writing it in my head the way you do because you remember the tape. 
I was pulling chunks um, before. I was like pulling tape when I would, as soon as I would get it. And then I didn't start writing anything until like we were, like we definitely had like a writing stage starting in like the fall. And that's when I started doing that. Do you think it's possible to do immersion reporting when your access to your main characters is inherently limited and stilted, for example, like if they're in prison? There might be other ways, right? I mean, folks have used writings from prisoners or recordings, right, from prisoners. I think you've got to get more creative, but I think that mm -hmm. probably pushes us to different stories, right? I guess that would be my response. I mean, even... You know, like, actually, like, some of the very best reporting I've done, I've done when I've been told, like, I can't come into school anymore. I think the first time I won a Third Coast Award it was for a project that it was like a, a it was a year long in a school. I got kicked out of the school. No surprise. <laughs> and then um, it was on dropouts. And I was like, well, it is about dropouts. I should just go find some of the kids that dropped out already. <laughs> and I went and found and I would be like, hey, you remember me, right, from, like, algebra? But I think on that case, I think, um, yeah, I think it's just, you just have to be more creative to be fly on the wall and you have to get them to be fly on the wall a little bit. Like I also gave recording recorders to kids uh, in addition to letting them play during recess with my radio equipment, but they, they also had recorders. So it sort of fits in that world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think like the thing that you do get is that like obviously st like sticking with someone like you do get that like prolonged storytelling but I guess because you couldn't physically be there like it would just be a matter of having them describe as much as possible and through their family members or you know through people that know them people who are calling them you can be around for those kind of calls hi uh, do you go back to the communities once the story is aired and if so um, what's the feedback you get um, so yeah we we you know kept in touch with Daryl and he was he was talking about it I mean he like mostly had positive things to say about it um, you know one of the interesting things like one of the mothers who I was working with um, it took her a really long time to listen to the story. And um, and I think like she she did have like good things to say about it when she listened to it. Um, but I, I thought it was interesting that you know she like had to take some time and like wasn't ready to listen to it right away, which is you know obvious. But yeah, um, I do go back to Lawndale. I'm still a reporter here, so I'm sometimes I'm assigned to Lawndale or see a story from Lawndale. Um, and I would say like overall like. Yeah, it's been a positive response. I think people have really, people in stories sometimes have a surprisingly like narrow view of the story. Like, um, like I'll I'll give an example from This American Life. Like the two hours, as a big exception, we we let the principal listen to the, the whole two hours, and she had like one problem. So this is like a story in which kids are talking about where they get guns, and there's you know lots of just a lot of stories. She has one problem. It's like the day that we taped in the gymnasium for the homecoming thing, they have a song on that's like kind of not playable on the radio. And she's really embarrassed by that, like the, the lyrics. It's like people, you'd be surprised sometimes when you give your work to other people, like you're seeing it from this really big perspective and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe we played that song. So like Jamarie's mom was like really 
completely, totally proud of Jamarie. Like she sees the whole story as about Jamarie and what a great kid he is on the computers. <laughs> like that's her view and that's, that's good. But I also use this opportunity to say like during, whenever I'm doing this and whenever it's possible, like I would spend a lot of extra time in Lawndale. I would go to church in Lawndale. I would like, there's unfortunately Lawndale, one, it's, you know, there's a lot of disinvestment in Lawndale. So unfortunately there's not a lot places where you can spend your money but if I had to meet someone I would definitely meet them in Lawndale like whether or not it was about this story I would say oh let's meet in Lawndale uh and I would I would take my family like there's one sit-down restaurant in Lawndale and I, I would, we'd be like they'd be like oh, we're not going to Lou Malnati's again <laughs> like I just try to be there as much as possible um because I think you it, it helps with that sense of place and people and what you're trying to depict Mm -hmm. So I still go Lawndale. <laughs> um, kind of uh, that kind of like gets to my question because when you are a fly on the wall and like when you're building relationships, are you always like asking questions? Are you like listening and like what's kind of like the ratio between just like listening and observing and being around people versus like you know actually like here are like all the things I also like want to ask. I think my ratio is like 90% listening and just flying the wall to like about 10% or less questions. Like I can tell you in the tape in my piece, I think maybe 2% of the tape would be like a question I asked. And 98% is just people talking. And also like even parts that seem like I would have asked a question, like people get so familiar with you. Like there's a part after that that's really toward the end where Miss Hathorne is reflecting on another situation that happened. And like, I didn't ask her any question. Like I came up the stairs, she saw me and she was like, oh, about that. <laughs> and so it really becomes driven just by what you're seeing. Yeah, I usually focus on like, just listening and being there. Like anytime I'm going somewhere, that's my primary focus. And then I'll set up interviews with people later or after to kind of like reflect on that or talk about what happened in the tape. Um, my question is about immersion of yourselves in your stories and in these places. And um, it seems like both of you made efforts in some ways to remove yourselves from the final tape, you know, from the reporting to do less of your voice, to have somebody else be a narrator or let the... Well, I didn't succeed at that, but it would have been nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of the end. I'm wondering about the, the opposite. Like, if in either of your projects you thought about putting in your own arcs as reporters because you're spending so long on the story, and even if that wasn't part of your decision, if you found other immersive pieces where journalists have made that decision and it's been successful to, uh, to make themselves as a participant in the story? Well, some stories I love like that, like, like, like um, Rachmani at the um, Caliphate. Oh, like, yeah. I really love the behind the scenes, like, reportery type. But maybe that's just because I'm a reporter, but I find that really interesting. But no, I actually went to extremes to not have myself. I mean, I'm in it in the sense that I'm relating with little kids, and I think that's a helpful thing because I'm sort of like the surrogate for the listener in that sense. But, for instance, like me getting kicked out, if I were doing like a day-to-day -day reporting story and somebody kicked me out, I would probably report that I was kicked out because it's part of, the, part of what happened. 
But in this sense, I, I didn't, that's an example of something that was about me, but it didn't need to be in the story. It w- would have distracted from the focus of what I was trying to wrestle with. Yeah, I, I just kind of feel like, I still feel like I, I was in the story. I did like narrate a lot in it, and you can hear like my questions in the tape. Um, and I think it's kind of a matter of preference too. Like some people, I, I think like when, when journalists are in stories and they put themselves in the stories, like I prefer it's like when they actually did like did something or like they have some type of involvement or like, you know, they like change the course of the story, whether it's for better or for worse. But otherwise, I just don't really feel like I need to like occupy that much space in the story. I want to share my tape, you know. Hi. So my quick question was, especially as you're trying to figure out like what your story is, um, how do you, and then you have like hundreds of hours of tape, how do you like, and especially, I know you document like the specific things that are maybe like standout moments in your day of recording. How do you filter out the noise? Like especially as you're kind of sitting down to report on a big idea. So one part of our talk that we didn't get to that I feel is relevant here is group edits. And that's one thing I would recommend. Like this piece went through our piece and I think your piece too went through a lot of group edits. So if you're not familiar with that, that's just like you sort of assemble people to listen. And I, in my case, I had people listening to my tape initially, like no scripting. And, you know, it's it was a place for me to try to try out my ideas where I could say, hey, so what I'm trying to show is this, or like what this shows to me is this. And then I would have, you know, I'd be able to sort of incorporate their their reactions, their recommendations about refining things down. I think that's really important. That was a vital part of my process. It gave me some of the language, especially around like the cheating stuff, um, where I needed, I needed to understand how other people were gonna see and hear like what I was presenting, and I wanted that interpreted in a certain way. Uh, I'm curious what you mean by like the noise. Are you talking about? while you're selecting tape two, like the, you know, like just like there's so much to think about and you have so much tape? I think it's especially like when you're reporting on like big ideas like homicide, right? Or, or poverty in schools, um, just kind of, and, and especially I guess in, in your case, it sounded like you have all these different stories um, and as you're just feeling things blindly and seeing what's interesting and what isn't. I feel like what often happens with me is like, I'm so fascinated in so many things that like, I, I have to like find my ways to like keep myself grounded. Like, no, 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 that's another story. Or, and, and how do you like stray away from temptation or like figure out how to like gymnast- the gymnastics to like incorporate it and then that's what I mean by noise, the, the temptation to kind of, like, veer in the different directions. Yeah. I think for me, like, I, I like, streamline it. And um, I either, either I'm, like, going really big and I have a bunch of things in there and it's really bloated or I keep it, like, really tight. But one thing I will say, like, in doing these stories, 
I continue to listen to my tape and especially like those sessions where where I have made cuts and selections that I know has a lot of good stuff and then I'll go back and there's like things that I find later on that I'll incorporate like later on in for you know edits down the line and like just these little scenes or these little like lines and things that like actually end up like building the story once we've figured out what it is so you don't really have to have everything and all the tape you need like right at the beginning like I think that can be it can be like too confusing but once you like distill what you're trying to do and what you need and what you're missing, then when you go back to your tape, you can be like, ah, you know, and then all those things. Will. And I would say just keep remember, you know, your topic is big, but your story should be small. And you want to take out any, rem any repetition. So kids, you know, the kids that I was looking for, the kids that I chose to feature are all showing really distinct things. And I think the same was true mm -hmm. for Counted. You know, those obits aren't repetitive. One is showing, you know, the impact of moving out. One is showing, you know, different different parts of your, the phenomena that, but related to the topic you're writing about. So if you keep that in mind, draw your circle. Mm -hmm. And if keep it's it still too big, then draw it smaller and draw it smaller until you get a manageable circle. And that's okay. it. That was the Q&A from day one of immersion reporting. Now here's the Q&A from the second day. Linda, I was just wondering if you could just close the loop on the cheating thing and tell us what day two was like when you went back in or whenever you had to talk to them and if, what you remember about those conversations. And Indies, I wonder if you have any other ethical situations that you got into. As a reporter, that's something that I think about a lot is when you spend a lot of time with someone in that relationship and that give and take, but you're also trying to be away. So anyway, both of you can see about that. So I you can hear in the tape, I immediately asked the principal about the situation, and she said, oh, you know, she gave her answer. And I really didn't revisit that for a long time. We definitely, um, and I sort of acted the same way I acted when I was in that room, like, oh, no problem. I'm just the one with the earphones and the microphone, and I'm taking a lot of pictures. And um, it didn't come up, and I didn't bring it up. I did. We did talk to the principal well ahead of when this piece was going to air, and we told her that this was going to be a part of the piece. Mm -hmm. I also just want to say I don't have to have anything as like you know comparable to Linda's, and I'm okay with that. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I think there's a lot of like. I will say like awkward situations that you will find yourself in when you're doing this reporting, like just things will happen and you'll just be like, okay, I'm here with this microphone and you become really self-aware. And so, you know, the thing that I try to do is I just try to like keep it chill. Like I don't really say too much. And, um, and I just like, I'm stay there. I'm like, I'm here with this microphone, you know, like, let's just see what happens. And I just try to slow myself down. Cause I do think like, I'm sure like with the Nancy Updike tape, the tape too like this is a situation is just like oh it's getting heated and what do I do like just keep the microphone there unless someone is like no you know so pro tip like just don't look at anyone just be like super into your levels right then <laughs> <laughs> super into your levels also I'll just say quickly because sometimes people um well especially with podcasting you know it's like more and more common to sort of roll out the stories in real time so roll out a series of stories, and I think that would have totally changed the game. If I had come out with that, then I would not have been back in the school. There would not have been a day two or like a day after that podcast. Let's put it like mm -hmm. that. And also like be a human, be considerate, check in after something happens, you know, just like use your instincts. 
I have a question about group edits. Do you have suggestions for how to do a group edit on a big, complicated, long piece with a lot of people involved in the room giving feedback and not have it take four or five hours and sort of get everybody's best thinking in an efficient way? Well, one thing we did, we actually had a lot of people who couldn't like physically make it to the edit that day. So we had some notes um, and there were some people that sent notes, which was really nice because then we could go through it after we had the big conversation um, and just like go through it by line by line and be like, do we want that? No. Okay. Also, I think we had a pretty good idea of what we, what the story was by the time we went to the group edit. So I think it, it was, the story was like pretty like clear and tight. And so we knew too, like what edits we wanted to, what we wanted to take and consider, and what ones we were like, you know what, that's that's not going to happen. And we just kind of worked in that way. I'm just looking for some advice, um, some awkward moments I had that I didn't know quite what to do with. I did a very light feature for BBC recently. Uh, it was about a visiting aquarium that went to a public housing development on the south side of Chicago. I met some kids who. I just, I was very captivated. They had so many very interesting things to say that never made it into the story. And uh, a few weeks later, uh, one of these girls, I went to her house because I wanted to play the piece for her. I knew she wouldn't have seen it. She's 10 years old. Her mom was at home. I'd met her mom previously, but her mom was at home. But her uncle said, yeah, sure, you can play it for her. And, and I said, you know, I'd really like to do more reporting with her. I'd like to record more. And he was like, oh, I'm sure that's fine. It's fine. And I said, but is her mom home? I'd really like to talk. Well, she's not home, but, you know, it's fine. Anyway, I said, and so I said, so I can record right now? He said, fine. And he went back in the house. A couple things happened. <laughs> I just didn't know what to do with Number one, as we were talking, um, the girls, I, I knew that they were supposed to have started school. She, I said, how's the first day of school? And this was her and her cousin. And she said, oh, we, we didn't go to school. We're, um, you know, because uh, uh, our moms are going to take us next week because even though school started last week, we're, uh, we're going to be going to get our hair done and we're going to get some nice new clothes for school and stuff like that. And I thought, okay, so... I don't have, if I do end up doing some immersion reporting, all I have is her. I think that's interesting and significant, but I just have that her uncle said, yeah, you can sit here and talk to those girls. So a, I don't even know how I would go about being able to use that tape. Maybe talk to her mom and say, did this happen? Why? What? The other thing that I didn't know, I probably did the wrong thing, these girls who'd seen me drive up, they said, is that your car? And I said, yes. And they said, can we sit in your car? And I said, I guess. Yeah, sure. And I didn't know if that was a correct response or not. But it was just a few doors down and we sat in the car. They said, can we open your glove compartment? I said, okay. And there were Tic Tacs and they said, can we have these Tic Tacs? And I said, yes. And I don't know if any of that is okay. And I'm just curious what people think. Okay, um, I think like A, you, I suggest figuring out what your boundaries are before you go out there um, and uh, sticking to them. And then also in the case of, you know, the uncle saying yes, like I think the thing about immersion reporting is that the idea is that you continue to go back and like you check in, right? So if it feels icky, 
It probably is icky. And um, I also think that like, if you are continuing to check in with them, you, like hopefully you will be able to run into the mother and actually get permission. But I think personally, if it was me, I would try and make sure that it's okay with the mother. I would play the tape for the mother before I felt comfortable running that. And also I would say, what's your story about? Like a family that didn't send their kids to school. Like, so does it fit into something bigger or not? On Tic Tacs, absolutely yes. Kids love Tic Tacs. <laughs> I have no problem giving kids Tic Tacs. <laughs> um, I have kind of a, just a small but kind of practical question I was curious about. Maybe this is less of a concern for a long, in-depth project where you're going to be with them over you know, days and days and days. However, that, that um, tension between wanting to always be rolling, like from the moment that you get out of your car and walk in to meet somebody, versus you know, that being a little bit off-putting when you're just meeting somebody. And so you want to kind of capture anything you could, but you also want to you know, gain that trust and that rapport. I just wonder how you sort of handle that. So on my first, I try to gauge it. Uh, like when I set up access, I was meeting with like the principal and the district officials and that meeting I didn't tape. But actually like the very first time I ever saw the principal, I had all my gear on because I was there for the mayor. And I actually don't have any problem with that. I actually try to put that gear on all the time. And then I'm just like, I just take the micro oh, and I'm Linda Lutton. And this is, hey, this is like all my equipment. This is all, this is it. This is the whole thing. And, uh, and then just keep moving on from there. Or like, you know, here, here, put it down on the table or whatever. But I just try to make it a part of me. Like it's the most natural thing so that they don't actually ever see me without it. I, um, I, you know, these are so many great do's for immersion reporting. I'm just curious, do you have anything that you tried where you're like, oh, definitely do not do that? <laughs> it's kind of hard to think about, like, the specific don'ts. I mean, I also feel like, like, like I said, like, be a person. Like, don't be an asshole, you know? Like, I think sometimes, um, I don't know about you, Linda, because you're, like, station reporter and you have like these like um you kind of like I think the ethics are like very very clear and cut and dry and sometimes with storytelling I feel like you you have to just kind of like not break the rules but you you know it get it gets a little blurry sometimes when you're in these immersion reporting situations and I think like going with your like morals as a person just helps you with that and kind of like will guide like your reporting and what to do and how to carry yourself and how to handle yourself. And I think that's one of the most important things about like going out there because you're interacting with people at the end of the day. So like I'll answer your question with a, another do. Like like be a human first. I guess you can write that as a don't if you want. Like don't be only a journalist. You know, like be a human. Because, like, especially on long-term projects, like, you're knowing people, right? You're sort of in their life much more than, than you have any real obligation to be. Uh, or any, like, there's no reason they have to let you in that way. Uh, so be, be, be a human first. On tri-group edits, because somebody asked this earlier, like how do you implement that kind of thing? Not all of us are in newsrooms, not all of us have those kinds of resources. So recently, after I've been doing a reporting project for the past 12 months, um, using MailChimp, Google Drive, and Google Forms, I've created a virtual kind of editor group 
So through MailChimp, I send out a very pretty looking email that says, this is the tape for this week. It's under 15 minutes. The button's at the bottom. It goes to the Google Drive link, which plays the tape. Then they get a response form that has the questions. And these are just like 30 or so friends, reporters, and other producers. And it's been really, really wonderful because the team is just me otherwise. Um, so that is actually a really great system if any of you are independent producers and looking for a way to build that. So try that. Great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you just like met all these amazing people here this weekend, so you can also ask them. Um, I have a question about maintaining relationships with people you end up not using in the piece. You know, when you're, I've done some reporting in a very small town, and people see that you've started to pick out, like, these are the four people you're following, and they feel like maybe they're not representative, or they want to be included. Just how do you deal with the people that don't make it in? Oh, yeah, like in Sharp Objects, the cheerleader. Um, <laughs> um, I'm really transparent with people in the beginning. I tell them, you know, I'm doing this story, and, you know, I was like, I don't really know what the story is, so, like, you... You might be in it, you might not, I'm not quite sure, but I want to follow you and get this tape, you know? And so it was like very clear that I still, we were still gonna have to decide what we were doing. And one thing we also did is we created a website so that we could like house all the tape that we got and all the stories that didn't necessarily like fit into the one hour documentary, but they live somewhere else. And the other people are like also memorialized as well. I love that solution, you know, like including them some other way, basically, online, even though you couldn't fit them in. Mm -hmm. I have a question going back to the, um, to like the cheating scenario. Did anyone from like this Department of Education like pick up on that? Or like has ever in your, um, in like your history of reporting, has like negative repercussions come from the fact that you expose something of like a community? Um, I don't think any negative repercussions came from that. The, the principal was investigated. We never could really nail down like what that really meant. That was the school district's like investigation. I can tell you like Dr. Ollie is still the principal of William Penn. Ms. Hathorne has retired, which she was on course to do. And um, the state, when I called to confirm and they confirmed that it appeared a test item had been compromised or something like that, an active test had been compromised. They, their big concern was that I not publish that photo that you saw there. That was their huge concern because that would have violated their contract with Pearson, the test-making company. Hi, I have a question about identifying the characters in the storyline like as you're reporting. Um, first of all, how do you, do that without just gathering like so much tape that it becomes ridiculously overwhelming to, to, to turn into a story. And how do you, so you were talking about the example of Chelsea um, and you didn't know she was gonna be a main character until the very end and so you had to go back and find tape to build her story out. Um, you make choices when you're interviewing people or when you're following people, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm recording this conversation with these people instead of this conversation with these people. So how do you like weigh if you don't know who the character is going to be, like, how do you know whose conversation you should be miking? Uh, I don't know if it's a little broad, but that's how do you where all you those hundreds of hours of extra tape come in handy. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't like. I am not an. I am not giving a talk on efficiency in reporting. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it like that. <laughs> so I wildly over-report. 
And I would say some of the, okay, the other thing is in my piece, probably 90, somebody asked me this proportion yesterday, like I would say 95% of what is in that piece, the tape, is fly on the wall. It's just me miking. I'm not asking any questions. There's no interviews. And you can go back and interview. Like I hung out with Chelsea's family more after Caprice was killed. And and I understood more things, but I also had been in the class so much. I knew Chelsea, it's not that I didn't know her, and I, I knew how she was in class, and I knew how she was with her peers, and I had other tape of her interacting with her peers. Um, so that's, that's where, in some ways, all that over-reporting paid off, because I was able to go back and pull it. And also, as soon as you, you know, finish, like when you're kind of like keeping that like light log, if you can, I would go in and try to isolate the good stuff as soon as possible, just so you know where it is and you can find it really quickly. And also something that I've found, like I don't, I don't, I haven't done this intentionally, but I found myself doing this um, with some stories is that along the way, I'm, I still listen to the tape. And so as the story, as we're forming the story in the, in the editing process towards the end, I'm still finding really good tape. Like even the Amani tape, like the interview was in November. We were, you know, we were doing the story in like early winter, like it was probably February. And it was like February, the story had been like mixed more or less. And I was like, I just, uh, I need this, you know, I just heard it and I was like, oh, let's just throw this in, you know? So it's just like, I kept listening and kept finding things that were like more aligned with how the story was turning out. Okay, thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much.